Thank you, Vincent and worship team, for leading us in the songs of worship, reminding us of our Savior's resurrection. Good morning to all of you. Grateful to see many of you. Some of you are visiting us, and we're so grateful to have you here with us here this morning. And for all of the church family that's here as well, we would want to uh, express just our joy just to be able to worship with you this morning as well, because this is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, if you will. Um, what a great day it is for us to be able to worship together. Uh, our passage this morning is going to be found in the book of Luke, chapter 24. Luke 24. Before we start, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you excited in great anticipation just because we know that Christ is risen from the grave and he is risen indeed. We are so thankful for the resurrection because it is everything to us. It is everything to us. It is the assurance of sins forgiven. It is the assurance of the fact that we get to be with you. And because of that, we are so excited to study more about the resurrection. We pray that, Lord, as we study your word, that you would be honored and glorified in it. That you would magnify yourself in our eyes that we might love you more and live in light of that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. There are certain moments in life that are so joyous, so momentous, that we cannot help but cheer with excitement. And some events, some recent events that have done that for me have occurred in the year 2010, 2012, and 2014. For those of you who know what I'm referring to, you know that I'm talking about the Giants winning the World Series. Whenever I see highlights of World Series victories, the Giants World Series victories, by the way, it causes me to have tears well up in my eyes and elicit great feelings of pride. And it's kind of an unreasonable reaction, but as a diehard Giants fan, the reason why I get so excited about that is because those victories are meaningful to me. They tell me, they remind me that my team, my favorite franchise, climbed the mountaintop and we won it all. And we can hold that over everyone, including Dodgers fans, forever. <laughs> now while those championship clinching days are some of the greatest days that I've experienced in my life so far, I know that for some of you, you'd care less, right? Baseball, who cares? What makes days great compared from one person to, a, from one person to the other is very subjective, right? What's great for me might not be great for you. It varies from person to person, but there is a day, there is a day out there that is so great that it makes all other great days pale in comparison, and that is today, Resurrection Sunday the day that we remember Christ's resurrection from the dead. We celebrate and we rejoice on this day because Christ's resurrection signifies that the curse of sin, death, has been defeated. The importance of Jesus' resurrection is so significant, so important, that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith in him is worthless since you will still be in your sins. But what are some reasons we can have assurance of Christ's resurrection if the forgiveness of sins hangs on Christ's resurrection? Well, this morning, 
we will observe three assurances of Christ's resurrection from the dead, which causes us to rejoice. Three assurances of Christ's resurrection from the dead, which causes us to rejoice. And that first assurance that we're going to observe is Christ's, or sorry, the empty tomb. The first assurance of Christ's resurrection that we observe is the empty tomb. Verse 1 to 3 of chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Jesus' crucifixion occurred on Friday. So we know that because in Luke 23, 54, it says, that Luke, it says that Jesus was crucified and buried on preparation day. That is, the day before the Sabbath. Now, in ancient times, the day that a multi-day event began was considered day one of that event. An additional note about how days were counted was that part of the day, any part of the day, was considered the whole part of the day. So Jesus was buried on Friday, that's day one. Saturday is day two. And then Sunday is day three. The ancients did not count days, count time like we did. It's not according to a 24-hour clock, which is why even though a full 72 hours did not elapse, it's still considered Jesus being raised on the third day. Now Luke records here that it was the first day of the week. It was the first day of the week at early dawn when the women who followed Jesus came to the tomb and they brought spices, the spices that they prepared in order to anoint Jesus's body so that his body would be preserved and so that decay could be delayed. Now, when they got to the tomb, they found that the stone had been rolled away. And that might have been strange to them, but they entered into the tomb anyway. And when they did, they did not find the body of Jesus. Normally, when you enter a tomb or when you open a coffin, you would expect to see a dead person there, right? But that's not what they found. It was empty. Instead, they're surprised by two men, two angels, who stood before them in dazzling clothing. It says, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And these women, when they, when they saw that, they were startled by that. They were scared. And the reaction is very typical of anyone who encountered angels in, in the Bible. Right? They were terrified, and they bowed their faces to the ground because they understood that the ones who stood before them were angels, representatives of God. And these angels, they knew why the women were at the tomb, and they asked them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Earlier in Luke chapter 9, 22, following the feeding of the 5,000, which if you remember is very early on in Jesus' ministry, earthly ministry, Jesus tells his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And this is not the, first, this is not the only time that Jesus taught his disciples these things. It was a regular part of his ministry. He continually taught them the fact that he must suffer, that he must die, and that he must be raised again. So the fact that Jesus had to die, that he had to be raised up from the dead, should not have been a surprise to these women, and it should not have been a surprise to the disciples. 
But like many of us who are hearing advice from older saints or older people, and we're not ready to hear it, we hear it and it just goes in one ear, out the other. And that's kind of what happened here. The women and the disciples were not ready to understand this. They were not ready to hear this. And so they forgot what Jesus had said previously. But now that these women remember what Jesus had told them previously, they return from the tomb. They go back to where the 11 apostles are and other believers. And they told them what they saw, what they encountered at Jesus' tomb. Now Luke, he tells us some of these ladies who were there. It says in verse 10, now there they were... Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women were with them were telling these things to the apostles. Now you got to be wondering, why is Luke bringing up these ladies? Why is he bringing up their names here? Well, his point is that these are reputable women, women who had followed Jesus for a long time. Their testimony should have been accepted because they knew Jesus and followed him. It's not like they were strangers. They knew the apostles. They had a relationship with them. And so their testimony should have been taken at face value. But despite the fact that these women knew Jesus and followed him for a long time, the apostles thought that what they were saying was nonsense. It didn't make sense to them because they, like the women, had forgotten what Jesus had taught them regarding his death and resurrection. So they refused to believe the women. And it's not because that they were women. It's just they weren't expecting a resurrection. And so because they weren't expecting a resurrection, they refused to listen. Now, however, Luke reports that Peter, he got up, right? It says in verse 12, Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Peter doesn't really know what to do with what he sees. He hears what the women say. He goes to the tomb to investigate. He looks in, and well, sure enough, Jesus' body is not there, but he doesn't really know what to do with that. So he just heads home. However, on this side of the cross, we do know what to do with that. We know that the evidence of the empty tomb is highly significant because it it reminds us that those of us who are Christians, we do not worship a dead Savior, but we worship a resurrected Savior who was able to overcome death. As a result, we can have assurance that we will be forgiven of our sins because Jesus Christ functioned as a stand-in for all of mankind, taking the punishment that we all rightly deserved, that we rightly earned because of our sins upon himself so that those who believe in him will be saved. The empty tomb is a powerful statement to the world because it tells us that there is hope, that death is not the end, all because Jesus rose from the dead. Eternal life is possible because Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross and he rose again three days later so that anyone who repents of their sins and believes in him might have eternal life. If you are here with us this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have not confessed your sin and believe that he is the Son of God who died for you and rose again, it is not too late for you to do so. God knows that every single one of us is not perfect that every single one of us cannot do enough good works or cry enough tears of sorrow to adequately deal with the sin debt that we owe. So being the gracious and merciful God that he is, God made a way himself to deal with that sin debt. In Christ, all of your sins, past, present, future, 
are forgiven. It doesn't matter how small it is. It doesn't matter how large it is. All of your sin can be forgiven if you repent of your sins and believe upon him. And you can have confidence from this day forward, if you believe in him, that you will be in heaven with him forever and that nothing will, will be able to separate you from his great love. That is the hope. That is the good news that is available to you today if you would believe. The first assurance of Christ's resurrection that we observed is the empty tomb. And that leads us to our second assurance of Christ's resurrection, which is the road to Emmaus. The road to Emmaus. Luke shifts the scene. And he now focuses on two disciples, not previously introduced. And he writes in verse 13 to 14, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. So on the very same day, probably shortly after the women report that they found Jesus' tomb empty, these two disciples, they leave Jerusalem in order to go to a village by the name of Emmaus. We don't really know too much about Emmaus. We don't really even know where it is exactly. But what we do know is that it is, that it is seven miles away from Jerusalem. This little detail will be significant later. But during the seven-mile walk, these men were talking about all the things that had taken place over the last couple of days. Jesus' betrayal, his mock trial, his crucifixion, and now the reports of his resurrection. And as they're talking, Luke tells us that Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing them. There's no indication here in the text as to why the disciples were unable to recognize who Jesus was as he was walking and talking with them. But it appears that for God's own glory's sake, he just did not allow for them to recognize him. I don't know what that, what that really looks like. I don't know if his voice was different or if his face was different. But for whatever reason, God prevented them from recognizing that this was Jesus. Now, Jesus, he asked them, what are these words that you are exchanging one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. Jesus is asking them, what are you guys talking about? And the weight of the crucified Christ hits them so hard that they just stop walking. They stop walking because they're so sad. And Cleopas, he answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Cleopas, this disciple, he's in a bit of shock. He's like, how, how do you not know? W weren't you in the city too? Why don't you know about all the things that have happened? And so he tells Jesus the things about Jesus the Nazarene who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. 
Cleopas explains to Jesus what they know about Jesus. He calls Jesus a prophet, mighty in deed and word. And you know that Jesus is much more than that. Right? So Cleopas is missing some important information. Jesus will fill that in later. Jesus, in his response to Cleopas, he still doesn't indicate to the disciples who he is, but his next words are very, very interesting. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Wouldn't it have been amazing, cool to be in that conversation? And even though Jesus was rebuking the disciples, it would have been Really cool just to sit there, to have Jesus teach you from all the Old Testament, everything that the Old Testament has to say about Messiah. That would have been really fun. Jesus' point here is that everything that the scriptures have ever spoken about the Messiah was fulfilled in their eyes, before their eyes, in the crucifixion of Jesus. That Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a good man. But he was, in fact, the Son of God who took on human flesh in order to give up his life a ransom for sinners. And so they continue on in that conversation until they arrive at Emmaus and the disciples, they invite Jesus to stay with them and have a meal since it was nearly evening. And Jesus accepts their invite and he takes the bread. I don't know why he takes the bread because he's in their house, but he takes the bread. He gives thanks and, it is at, and, he, and as he's passing out the bread, it is at that point, at that moment, God opens their eyes and they realize it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who's giving us the bread. And then as quickly as they recognize that Jesus is the one who's giving them the bread, he vanishes from their sight. As quickly as they recognize it, boom, gone. Where'd he go? But full of excitement, they look at each other. They're in disbelief. They, they can't believe that they missed the fact that they were talking to Jesus this whole time. Look at their reaction. Verse 32. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. See, as Jesus was explaining the scriptures to these men, their hearts burned with excitement as they heard his words. It's that same sense of awe and wonder that you can feel at times when your Sunday school teachers or, your, or a pastor or, or some other preacher makes connections or presents insights into scriptures that finally makes the scriptures make sense, right? That light bulb feeling, that burning in your heart where you're like, whoa, this is so cool. I have to go tell someone about this. It's that kind of feeling. And that excitement leads Cleopas and his friend to depart to Jerusalem at that very hour because their conversation with Jesus corroborates verse 34, that Jesus really had appeared to Simon or Peter. Now, quick side note. In our account, Luke does not mention that Jesus had appeared to Peter, nor do any of the other gospel accounts mention that Jesus appeared to Peter. But 1 Corinthians 15 mentions that Jesus appeared to Cephas, which is one of Peter's other names, and the apostles. So 
somewhere in between Peter visiting the tomb and these, the, these disciples leaving to go to Emmaus, Jesus appears to Peter. And Peter tells this to the rest of the apostles and the assembly that's with them, but they don't believe. And so, as they see Jesus, Cleopas and his friend, they're like, whoa, what Peter was saying is true. What the women were saying is true. We have to go back to Jerusalem. We need to tell everyone else, we need to tell everyone else that Jesus really did rise from the grave. And so they go at that hour to Jerusalem. Remember, it's a seven-mile walk back to Jerusalem. Remember that the reason why they pulled aside in Emmaus, they asked Jesus to pull aside at Emmaus was because it was late in the evening. But they were so excited. They didn't care that it was late in the evening. They didn't care that they had a seven-mile walk to go back to Jerusalem. They went back to Jerusalem that very hour. And they went and they found Peter and the rest of the apostles. Jesus' encounter with the disciples on the road to Emmaus is important not only because it's the first time that the resurrected Christ is presented, but also because Jesus proves to his disciples that everything that happened, though it wasn't what they expected, went all according to God's sovereign plans. While every single detail of prophecy had not been fulfilled, because there are still aspects of the promise that have yet to be fulfilled, the point is that God fulfills his promises, that he is sovereign. The disciples, they forgot what Jesus had taught them. And it appeared to them that all hope was lost, that they followed the wrong man, that the mission had been aborted, that none of this was supposed to happen. But what Jesus shows here is that all went according to God's sovereign plan. Every single little detail God used in order to accomplish his purposes. The road to Emmaus gives us great assurance of Jesus' resurrection because we get to see God's sovereignty on display, how God orchestrates everything in order to bring about the salvation plan that he had promised in the Old Testament. If God is able to use all of the events in human history in order to accomplish his plans, even when we think we've thwarted him, can we ever doubt that this sovereign God will lose us or will keep us? Can we? We can't. Our sovereign God will never abandon us because he said that he won't. If he can keep his promises in the Old Testament, he can surely keep his promises now. Even through the deepest, darkest days, we can have confidence that the resurrection of our Lord is what ensures our salvation because his resurrection points us forward to the hope of heaven so that even in those darkest days, we can have joy knowing that the best is yet to come. We can have joy in these dark times, not because we are putting on a smiley face and telling people that we're okay, even when we're not, because the Bible told us that we're supposed to count it all joy when we, when we encounter various trials. So just because it says that, I'm going to be joyful and slap on a fake smile on my face. And it's not because of that. We can be joyful. We can have hope because of the resurrection. 
See, joy doesn't always equal happiness. Rather, joy is confidence, it's satisfaction, it's contentment in the hope of heaven to come. That's what gives us joy. That's what gives us hope. So we've seen two assurances of Christ's resurrection this morning. The empty tomb, and now the road to Emmaus. We're going to look at our third assurance of Christ's resurrection, which is the appearances to the faithful. The appearances to the faithful. Verse 36 to 37. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. So as Cleopas and friend are excitedly telling the apostles about their encounter with Jesus, Jesus himself appears and greets them. Naturally, they're startled and frightened because just a few moments before, Jesus was not in the room. It would be just as startling if I was up here preaching to you, we were all here together, and then all of a sudden Jesus appears right next to me and says, peace be to you. He's like, whoa, where did you come from? You were not there just a few moments ago. It's kind of like that. But you can see that even with these multiple confirmations that Jesus was truly alive, multiple reports of his resurrection, there still is a sense of doubt in the apostles because when Jesus appeared in that room with them, they thought that they were seeing a spirit. That's mind-blowing. But before we get too, before we get too, too hard on the apostles for, for being really slow of heart to believe that Christ rose from the dead, this is helpful for us. Their doubt is helpful for us because the fact that they were taken by surprise shows us that contrary to some theories, these, these disciples were not expecting Christ to rise from the grave. So why would they, according to some of these theories, steal the body of Jesus and tell people that he was alive? There's no benefit to them in that. If they weren't expecting it, they weren't expecting a resurrection. So there's no way they would make up a story of Jesus' resurrection for their own gain. They were absolutely stunned to see Jesus at all, to the point where when they saw him appear in, in the room, they thought they were seeing a spirit, not the Holy Spirit, mind you, but a ghost. They thought they were seeing a ghost. But Jesus, he comforts them, and he tells them in verse 38 to 39, why, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus knows that the apostles, that they are doubting, that, he, that he's truly standing before them because nothing like this has ever happened before. Sure, there were, there were instances in the Old Testament where people rose from the dead. Right? Jesus himself rose, uh, raised people up from the dead. So it's not the fact that he, was, that he rose from the dead that stunned them, but the fact that not only did he rise from the dead, but he just appeared out of nowhere in front of them. I mean, nothing like that has ever happened before. So he offers them proof. He says, here, see my hands? See my feet? Touch me. I'm real. Spirits don't have flesh and bone. Verse 40 to 43. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. 
So even though the apostles, they see Jesus' hands and they see his feet, because of their joy and their amazement, they're still in a bit of disbelief. It's like that excited reaction that we can have at times when someone tells us really exciting news and we look at them and we're just like, no way. No, you got to be kidding me. That's not true, right? It's like, that, it's like that reaction. And knowing that the apostles are struggling to believe that he was truly resurrected, that he was truly before them, he says, he proves it again by saying, hey, do you have anything to eat? Now notice that Jesus does not pick up the piece of fish himself. Right? He asked the apostles, do you have something to eat? And so they take the piece of fish and they hand it to him and he takes it and he eats it before them. See, this, even this careful way that Jesus goes about demonstrating that he is resurrected gives us some definitive proof that he's alive. If Jesus himself picked up a piece of fish and ate it before him, a Gnostic heretic someone who says that Jesus could not have had a physical body because all things that are physical are evil, but only the spiritual things are good, they could say, well, that's not a real body. Jesus doesn't have a real body. He's just a spirit. So if Jesus took the fish, they would say, no, he didn't take real fish. He just took something that appeared to look like fish, and he he appeared to eat it, and that's why He doesn't have a resurrected body. That's what they could say. But that's not what happened. The disciples, the apostles, they took the fish. They put it in his hands. And it didn't just drop on the floor. But it stayed in his hands. And he ate that fish before them. And it didn't drop on the floor. It stayed in his body. Jesus has a real resurrected body. In order for us to have any hope of forgiveness of sins whatsoever, Jesus actually had to have a physical body. He actually had to die on the cross. And he actually had to rise from the grave. All those things had to happen in order for us to have any hope of salvation at all. And that's what we see here. That's what we see here. Jesus truly was resurrected. And once he proved that he was alive, Jesus instructs them much like he did Cleopas and friend. And he says in verse 44, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus is reminding the apostles that he told them all these things before. And it's not kind of like a disappointed, angry, I told you so. But he's just reminding them gently because he knows that they weren't ready to hear it. He's reminding them that his resurrection, that his suffering, death, and resurrection should not have been a surprise to them, that he's been teaching them all those things before. Right? Everything in the Old Testament pointed to that. And so that's why he says, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, when you compare that to verse 27, it appears that Jesus expanded on what he was uh, telling Cleopas and his friend, because in verse 27, it only says that Moses, that from Moses and the, and the prophets uh, were used in order to teach them about Messiah. However, this verse, just like verse 27, is just another way for Luke to express the fact that Jesus used the entire Old Testament in order to teach the apostles what the scriptures had written about him. The law of Moses is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets are all the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets. And the Psalms, 
The Psalms represent all of wisdom literature in general. The Hebrew way to express the Old Testament was divided by law, prophets, and the writings. So even in, in the way that the Hebrews looked at their Bibles, the, the way that they divided up their Bibles, it was law, prophet, writings. And Jesus does the same thing here, except for instead of just saying the writings, he says the Psalms. But the Psalms represent all of wisdom literature. So what Jesus is saying here is that all things which are written about him in the entire Old Testament had to be fulfilled, which is why he needed to suffer, die, and rise again. And so because Jesus knew that the apostles would need some help to understand what he was teaching them, it says here in verse 45 that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. If you've been here at church, or at any church for any period of time, you've probably heard some comment about how the disciples, before Jesus died and rose again, they were a bunch of unconfident, bumbling, proud individuals, just fishermen, not that educated. Right? But then they transformed into amazing teachers, pillars of the faith, defenders of God's word, and leaders of the church. How did this happen? How did this transformation occur? It occurred because Jesus helped them understand the scriptures. He opened their minds so that they would actually understand what was in the Bible. They could see how it all works together, how it's interwoven, all to point to the gospel, the kingdom. And so now with Jesus' help, the apostles, they understand the scriptures in a way that they couldn't before. And so what we see here in verses 46 to 47 is a summary statement of what Jesus taught the apostles and what they are to do from now on. It says, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Even though he says this, that the gospel and the good news of repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to all the nations, we do know, by cheating forward a little bit into the book of Acts, that they still didn't fully understand what Jesus meant. Because God had to show the church, the early church, that the gospel needed to go to Gentiles as well. He needed to prove that to them. So when they saw this about the gospel going forth to all the nations, what they were thinking of in their minds was, oh yeah, of course, the gospel does have to go forth to all the nations because there are Jews scattered across the world. And that's why the gospel needs to go forth because salvation is to Israel. And that's true to an extent, but it's also to the rest of the world as well. So you do see that God will have to show them more of these truths later. But that's okay, right? The point here is that the apostles knew that the gospel had to go out, that it couldn't stay in Jerusalem, that being a witness does not mean that you just sit where you are. And only when people talk to you do you tell them about the gospel. Right? But it does need to go forth. 
Verse 48 to 53. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. And when you get to verses 48 to 53, you realize that what we have here is exactly the same thing that Jesus says to them in Acts 1. So Luke, he quickly covers Jesus' days, or the events in Jesus' life after his resurrection here in Luke, but he expands on it in Acts 1. So in a sense, it's kind of like if you're watching a football game, you see everything in full action, but then you slow it down into slow motion to see the little details that are there. And that's kind of what's happening here. After Jesus teaches all the apostles all that he needs to teach them, he reminds them that they are witnesses of how everything that the Old Testament talked about in regards to Messiah was fulfilled. And so because they know that Jesus fulfills all these things, they are to go forth. They are to tell the world about him. And that's why he sends them back to Jerusalem. They got to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. When the Holy Spirit comes, then they go out. And the rest of the story, you know, since we've recently gone through Acts 1, Jesus ascends into heaven in their sight, and the apostles, they head back to Jerusalem where they wait. Now, Luke, he summarizes here Jesus' appearances to the apostles into one little story, one instance. But we know from Acts 1 that there were many appearances of Jesus for a period of 40 days. And these appearances, and what Jesus did in these appearances, were the convincing proofs that Jesus was indeed alive, that he definitely rose from the dead. His appearances to his apostles, to the ones who knew him the most, was not a grand illusion of what they wished were true but was actually true. The apostles were not deceived, but knew with absolute confidence that their Savior, their Lord, is risen, and he is risen indeed. If someone were to ask you, ask us, why we have a reason to rejoice and have hope as a result of the gospel, we have a reason to rejoice and have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is everything to Christians because the resurrection of Jesus Christ opens the door for reconciliation with God the Father. It allows for us to mediate the conflict that we had with God the Father. And everything is wiped clean. All that conflict, all that sin is wiped clean because of the resurrection. And God allows for you each and every one of you, to receive that forgiveness of sin by his grace. And he gives that grace to you by faith. This morning, we observed three assurances that fuel that faith of Christ's resurrection, which causes us to rejoice. And they are the empty tomb, the road to Emmaus, and the appearances to the faithful. 
These three elements of Luke's gospel gives us every reason to rejoice because with each assurance, we receive more proof of the definitiveness of Jesus' resurrection. We say the tomb is empty. Someone says, oh, well, they just stole the body. No, they didn't steal his body because he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and he taught them from the scriptures all that was supposed to happen to Messiah and that it all happened according to God's plans. But they might say, well, did Jesus actually have a resurrected body or was he just a spirit because he just vanished in front of them? No, he was not a spirit. He appeared to them in the flesh. He appeared to the apostles in the flesh and he taught them from the scriptures and he showed them over that period of 40 days convincing proofs that he was alive. So we celebrate Resurrection Sunday this morning because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is truly alive. He truly did rise from the grave. He's living today and he is at the right hand of the Father waiting for God the Father to send him back to receive his saints and to establish his kingdom here on earth. Because of the resurrection, the greatest day in all of human history is today. Well, until Christ comes again and to bring us home. That, that will be even better. But until that day, we watch and we wait eagerly for his return. But we watch and we wait as we go about our lives, striving to be witnesses to those around us. And may our Lord continue to be worshiped in the way that we live our lives, and may he receive all the glory and honor that he is due. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for these assurances that you truly raised your Son up from the dead. That you kept all your promises. That forgiveness of sins is possible. That eternal life is available because of your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we think upon these truths of the resurrected Savior, may we continue to be filled with awe and wonder. May we live in eager anticipation of the fact that Christ is living and he's coming again. May that fuel us. May that encourage us. May that be the thing that we can't wait to share with others. Lord, we are so grateful for these truths. We pray that you would encourage us and motivate us this day to be witnesses of these truths. This is your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, happy Easter to all of you. I hope you have a chance to enjoy the time with your families. And if you don't have any family plans, please feel free to join us this evening at 5 p.m. for the Easter potluck. Enjoy your Resurrection Sunday and the rest of your weeks. You're dismissed.